as the water receded, there was this barrel, and inside the barrel uh, was the body of a person. And police investigated a little further and found that this individual in the barrel had been shot in the head. You're talking about a time of, uh, in Las Vegas history when the mob was extremely active. This has led to speculation that, in fact, the body in the barrel was the victim of a mob hit. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The water level at Lake Mead outside Las Vegas has been concerning environmentalists for years as the effects of global warming threaten water supply to states including Nevada and neighbouring New Mexico and Arizona. But as the water levels drop, authorities have been faced with a murder mystery that could be traced right back to the building of the casino town and its links to the mob. Today, I'm talking to Jeff Schumacher, Vice President of the Las Vegas Mob Museum, about a body in a barrel and the receding waters that could be throwing up the secrets of Sin City. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I just want to ask you about your your weather and your temperatures, first of all, because it's very relevant, bizarrely, to this fascinating crime story we're going to talk about. So how's things there today in Las Vegas? Well, you know, it's hot today. Uh, we Summer starts well before it technically starts here. And so we've been in the, in the hundreds pretty much for our high every day in June. We've had a couple, of, a couple of reprieves from that. But for the most part, by this time of year, uh, it's very hot. And it's also been very dry. Uh, we've had a, a very sustained drought uh, in the West. But Las Vegas, in particular this year, I'm not sure we've had a drop yet. I mean, it's uh, it's very, very dry. And of course, Las Vegas is in Nevada. I'm actually just back from Arizona myself where similar concerns are, you know, um, we here in Ireland talk about every time we meet, we ask each other how we feel about the weather or, you know, we just talk about it in general, but usually because it's raining on top of us. But Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, California, the big concern from a climate change point of view is is the water. And, you know, the Colorado River, which has been this powerhouse that, that you know, supplies water through seven of the states um, in that part of the world. It's under strain and and there there's worries that the, the water levels are reducing and the temperatures rising. And, uh, you know, it is, a, it is a major big problem. I think there was a, a, a climate conference on... Um, in the last couple of months in the regions as well. Now, our area of interest is Lake Mead, which is uh, a massive big area of water outside Las Vegas. And uh, it is drying up, Jeff. Well, it, it's definitely going down. It's receding. And, you know, it's important to remember that we call it Lake Mead, but it's a reservoir. And it's intended to be a storage, you know, a water storage uh, place uh, not only for uh, for Las Vegans to draw from, but also to you know to, to create electricity through Hoover Dam, and it it has been receding at a, at an unprecedented pace. 
of late, and we are definitely uh, dealing with this in our water supply system. You know, we have different, we can draw water from the, from the lake at different levels. And some of the higher levels that we were accustomed from to drawing water are no, they're above water now. They're above the top of the lake. So now we have one more intake that is below the lake and uh, below the lake's surface. And, uh, you know, if, if we got down to the, to the last one of those, we would be in deep trouble. Now, for those of us, an, an awful lot of Irish people, by the way, have been and go regularly to Vegas. We like a little bit of Vegas from this part of the world. But, you know, many people haven't been. And um, Vegas is plopped in the middle, really, of a desert. Um, and... It's a really strange place if you've never been before because you come out of this very bustling, busy, neon light city and you're just in dirt, basically. Um, but it was it was there that this massive casino uh, city was built, Sin City as we call it. But the lake is of interest, obviously, because it's located... Uh, a, a drive through the desert away from from Vegas, but there's been a number of fines really in the last couple of months, um, and it's to do with this climate change and to do with the receding waters, and they link back to Vegas, don't they, and its history? Yes, you know, uh, really since the you know the the late 1930s, uh, Lake Mead has been a recreation resource for Las Vegas. It's a place where people go. Uh, to you know, to water ski, to fish, to all the things you would do on any lake, but it's like the only one nearby, right? So uh, uh, people travel because it's so big. People travel from all over the Southwest to not only come to Las Vegas but to also go to Lake Mead, and um, so it's always been sort of this annex to Las Vegas. It's part of Las Vegas, part of the Las Vegas experience. Um, what's interesting is the. The now that the lake is receding, we're starting to find some of the history hidden beneath the lake. And uh, the most, you know, shocking of these uh, finds of recent times was a barrel uh, that kind of just was on the side of the, as the water receded, there was this barrel. And inside the barrel uh, was the body of a person. And police investigated a little further and found that this individual in the barrel had been shot in the head. So we're now looking at, you know, kind of an execution-style murder. And then when they looked at the clothing that was still attached to the, uh, you know, to the body, um, they kind of determined that, the, that the, the, it probably occurred, the murder probably occurred in the late 70s or the early 80s. And as a result, you're talking about a time of, uh, in Las Vegas history when the mob was extremely active when the mob was involved in a lot of violence and there was a lot of conflict with law enforcement, with a lot of attempts to prosecute the mob, a lot of government witnesses and informants were popping up. And um, so this has led to speculation that, in fact, the body in the barrel was the victim of a mob hit. And clearly the speculation that as the temperatures increase and and as Lake Mead reduces further, that maybe other bodies will show up. And uh, so let's just have a look at that for a minute because um, I'm reading, now there's a second body being found, is that right? There was a second body found, uh, but uh, there's no evidence that that was a victim of foul play. 
Um, w- one of the things to keep in mind about what is going to happen at Lake Mead over the, in the coming months and years is that I think more bodies are going to be found, uh, but they're not all necessarily murder victims. You know, uh, the, I think we've documented dozens of drowning victims whose bodies were never recovered from the lake. So the odds are that if we find more bodies, they may be drowning victims. However, you never know, another, another murder victim may pop in there. Yeah, I mean, look, anything that, you know, remains that are found in a barrel like that in those circumstances are clearly, uh, well, they certainly, to you or I, would point exactly directly to the mob and to organised crime. Um, Did I read that it's the police point of view that there's no foul play involved in this or was that with the other body? That's the other body. The, The main body, the main body is being treated as the body found in the barrel is being treated as a homicide and is being investigated uh, through a variety of means, uh, the police have have received a number of tips in the you know phone calls and emails and whatnot. Uh, people who think they know who it might be or the circumstances of it. Uh, also, they've sent the uh, you know uh, DNA from the body out uh, in the hopes of making some kind of a familial uh, you know connection to show who this was. Um, you know, it could be a victim of a mob hit. And uh, there's speculation about if that's true, who it might be, people who went missing back at that time. Uh, but there's also the possibility it could have been a murder, you know, murder of passion, or it could have been any any number of of things. And it, and it also potentially may be somebody who wasn't killed in Las Vegas. There may be a, a California connection or an Arizona connection, you know. But uh, the the odds still seem high that there's a Las Vegas connection to this. They sure do. And given your work with the Mob Museum, and um, you're a historian, essentially, Jeff, within the Mob Museum and a historian of the mafia, why don't we go right back and and look at the mob's uh, interest in Vegas and when it started? Because while... It's always said the mob built Vegas. They didn't actually. I never. I will never say that. Yes. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not. I've true, heard so. that so many times. Yeah, because <laughs> it's that's very what I was commonly expressed. That's exactly what I was about to say. Because they didn't actually build build Vegas. It was Nevada and its 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 sort of casino laws that really was the start of it all. And the mob kind of moved in when they saw uh, their opportunities. So, um, just. Go back a little bit to the to the history of it and, and when it all began. So, you know, Las Vegas, uh, you know, really got started in 1905 with the arrival of the railroad. So the railroad was built from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles, and the halfway point of the railroad was Las Vegas. And the, uh, the builders of the railroad said, we need to be able to have our train stop here, be serviced in one way or another. Let's build a town site. An auction was held on May 15th, 1905. Lots were sold and a town sprouted up, a small town. Uh, the big turning point, the next big turning point was 1931. Two m- important things happened in 1931. First, the construction of Hoover Dam began. And this drew thousands of, of men and, and families to Southern Nevada who wanted to work on the dam. Keep in mind, in America, this was the the heart of the, the Great Depression. There was not a lot, of, probably elsewhere as well, but it was in, in America, you know, unemployment was through the roof. People were looking for work and the government was building this giant dam out in the desert. So people are traveling from all corners of the country to Las Vegas, 
hoping to get a job on the dam. So it really boosted the population of Las Vegas. The other thing that happened in conjunction with that is as construction of Hoover Dam began, tourists started coming. Long before it was finished, tourists were coming to get a look at this engineering wonder that was happening out in the desert. So Las Vegas started seeing you know, tourists. So to capitalize on that, in that same year, the Nevada legislature legalized all forms of gambling in Nevada. And Las Vegas was a little slow to pick up on this, but it did legalize gambling in 1931. Um, there was a, a, a number of, of gambling clubs on Fremont Street, which is in downtown Las Vegas in 31. Um, you know, gambling, to be honest, had occurred in Las Vegas well before it was legalized. It was a pretty common practice here and not heavily regulated. But when it was legalized fully, you started seeing the growth of this industry. And it coincided with the tourism of people coming in from Hoover Dam. So the mob didn't really take interest in this until the 1940s. Um, you saw at the beginning of World War II, World War II for the United States, that is, in 1941, you saw the, uh, an army air base was built here. And this army air base showed, resulted in an influx of thousands and thousands of people here. At the same time, the government built a magnesium plant just outside of Las Vegas. And this, this also drew thousands of people. So you had this population explosion in Las Vegas in the early 1940s that generated a great deal of interest in building more facilities, hotels, casinos, you know, all the other businesses you would expect. The mob took a, a concerted interest in Las Vegas at this point. And in 1945, I would argue, is when the mob first really put down roots in Las Vegas. They, they bought a casino downtown called the El Cortez. And the people involved in that purchase included Meyer Lansky, uh, Bugsy Siegel, uh, Mo Sedway, a number of, of other individuals who came to be known, uh, identified with Las Vegas going forward. So the mob uh, really took an interest and became invested here in 45. Then in 46, the, the, you know, the Flamingo Hotel under you know, Bugsy Siegel uh, uh, opens. And then from there, the floodgates erupt. And you have mob coming in from Cleveland and from LA and from New York and you know Florida and all places so that during the 50s and 60s, the mob is now involved with, secretly or otherwise, in a large number of resorts on what becomes to be known as the Las Vegas Strip. Everybody's familiar with that today, but it didn't really exist until the mob came here and started building casinos on it, this highway. Um, so you, you jump forward to the 70s, which is the, the time period of this body in the barrel, and you're, the dominant mob group in Las Vegas is the Chicago mob, the Chicago outfit. And, and the Chicago outfit is in control of a hotel called the Stardust Hotel. They also have three others. They have the Hacienda, the Fremont, and the Marina. And the Chicago mob uh, has a man named Frank Lefty Rosenthal. He's played by Robert De Niro in the movie. Uh, he, uh, he is in charge of the casino at the Stardust. And then they have an enforcer, uh, played by Joe Pesci, uh, a guy named Tony Spilatro. And Tony Spilatro is in Las Vegas to make sure that money skimmed from the casino makes its way back safely to the Midwest uh, mob bosses so that they get their cut. Um, when Tony is here, Tony is also getting involved in other rackets, other criminal activities here. 
burglaries, jewelry fencing, loan sharking, illegal gambling, bookmaking, and so forth. And he's also has a, a kind of old-fashioned style of of enforcement. You know, you don't pay your loan shark, you're you know, they break your kneecaps. That old that old cliche, you know, was certainly in the mindset of Tony Spilatro. The FBI at that time in the late 70s had linked Tony Spilatro to 25 murders. Keep in mind, he had never actually been convicted of a murder, <laughs> uh, but he was. they believed that he was responsible for up to 25 murders. So when we were starting to look at this body in the barrel and the late 70s, early 80s time period, we our minds immediately turned to Tony Spilatro because he was the most prominent and uh, most violence-oriented guy in town at that time. So that's kind of the, the, the very thumbnail history. It was a super history, actually, um, and it got us through decades there with all sorts of stuff that went, that went on. So just to bring you back very quickly and briefly there to Bugsy Siegel. So he was a representative of the Italian mob in New York City. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't, yeah, yes and no. I mean, he, a lot of the investors in the uh, Flamingo Hotel uh, were of uh, Italian origin. They were mafia uh, guys like Frank Costello and Lucky Luciano and, and people like that. But they're also, Meyer Lansky, you know, was Jewish. He was not in the mafia, right? And, and there were other investors who, and Bugsy Siegel was Jewish as well. And so, you know, it was at that time, there was a lot of cooperation between the mafia and, you know, Jewish gangsters. And so I would say it, it was certainly was New York-oriented. Mm. And, uh, and Bugsy was originally from New York. Meyer Lansky was from New York. You know, Frank Costello was from New York. All these individuals were planting their, the flag out in Las Vegas together. And um, yes, and so Siegel uh, was not the originator of the Flamingo. This is also another work, piece of fiction. Uh, you know, the, the man who first started building the Flamingo, his name was Billy Wilkerson. And Billy Wilkerson was a a nightclub operator and a newspaper owner in uh, in Los Angeles. He also was a really big gambler, a uh, high-rolling gambler, terrible at it. <laughs> so much so that his friends advised him it would be better off, rather than giving all your money to these other casinos, maybe you should own one instead. So Wilkerson starts building the Flamingo in late 1945, but because of his gambling problem, he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, he turns then to some people who he had gotten to know, uh, you know, uh, in the New York mob. And Meyer Lansky and these other individuals agree to invest in the Flamingo. They send Siegel to Las Vegas to oversee their investment. And that's when Siegel takes such a liking to this project that he pushes Wilkerson out of the way. And for several decades afterward, you know, the history was kind of whitewashed to the to the extent that it was it was the idea is that Bugsy Siegel looks out in the desert and he has a vision for a casino that's going to invent Las Vegas, and uh, that's not how it happened. But but Siegel definitely had an important role in in that he got the Flamingo opened. It was a very elegant, uh, uh, expensive casino at a time when Las Vegas casinos were really more about like wearing cowboy boots and, you know, and uh, not dressing up for dinner. It was just very casual. And Siegel wanted to turn it into a high-class place. What happened, Siegel? Well, you know, Bugsy Siegel invested upwards of $6 million in the Flamingo 
which in 1946 was a heck of a lot of money. But he and he was uh, he was getting money from anybody he could he could co- coerce basically into investing. Uh, meanwhile, he was being incredibly arrogant about the whole thing. You know, the mob, his mob partners, people he'd known since he was a kid, were growing frustrated by his arrogance and his his you know profligate spending. And ultimately, in uh, June uh, of 1947, 75 years ago, uh, he was murdered. He had traveled from Las Vegas the day before. He arrives in Beverly Hills at a home that he was renting along with his girlfriend, Virginia Hill. He's sitting on the couch in the front room, and suddenly nine shots ring out from outside the window. Uh, Two of them hit Siegel in the face, two in the chest, five other bullets go elsewhere. He is killed. And not longer than 20 minutes later, three of his partners walk into the Flamingo and say, Bugsy's dead, we're in charge. So there's a great deal of mystery as to who exactly pulled the trigger. We don't know. Uh, We also don't know exactly what the motivation was for killing Siegel. But what we do know is that, uh, you know, despite the importance of his importance in getting the Flamingo off the ground, I think his his partners believe that he was not the best person to manage this place on a day-to-day basis. Through the 50s and 60s after his demise, was there a relative peace amongst the mobs? You say the Chicago mob came in and others and they all started to stake their claim. But did they have that sort of old school understanding that, you you know, your your word was your honour, I suppose your hand was your contract and you didn't certainly kill one another Um within the area that you were working because uh, that could cause you trouble. Yeah, so two, two uh, thoughts come to mind when you, when you put it like that. The first one is that, you know, Las Vegas was, was widely regarded as what the mob called an, an open city, right? So what that meant was that no one mob from around the country was declaring Las Vegas was theirs, their territory, and no one else could come in. Everybody who wanted to come in and invest in Las Vegas from a mob standpoint had the opportunity to do, to do that. And the, the consensus was that, you know, as this place grew, uh, that the benefits would, would spread widely and there'd be plenty of money for everyone. So it was an open city. The second uh, kind of rule of thumb for the mob in Vegas was let's not uh, have any dirty laundry in the newspapers right here in Las Vegas because this is a tourist town and we don't want to scare people away. So if you wanted to kill somebody, you had to kill somebody or you thought you had to do it anyway, uh, you would do it elsewhere. So there's some great examples of that. Uh, There's a man named uh, Gus Greenbaum and Gus Greenbaum was, uh, he ran the the Flamingo for many years. He later ran the Riviera Hotel in the 50s for the Chicago mob. But uh, Gus Greenbaum had crossed uh, his bosses, and they had had enough of him, apparently. And but he also he was originally from Phoenix, so he had a home in Phoenix. He and his wife were there, and when he would go home to Phoenix, you know, he would spend time there. Um, well, that's where he was killed. He was killed in Phoenix. He was not killed in Las Vegas. And then later, I mentioned Tony Spilatro, uh, uh, the Chicago uh, uh, enforcer who was sent to Las Vegas. He ultimately was killed in Chicago. They basically called him back to Chicago in 1986 and killed him there, 
rather than doing it in Las Vegas. So there was always this idea that you know you don't want these headlines right in the middle of your golden goose uh, of a town. No, indeed. And he was played, of course, by Joe Pesky in the Casino movie. And De Niro was lefty. But um, so, you know, in the movies, I suppose, we do see the the kind of the murder in the casinos, the guns coming out and um, the roulette tables literally turning blood red. Did that ever happen at any era, even in the in the in the late seventies and and the areas that the time period we're talking about now, when things get dirtier, I suppose, and um, people get become more territorial over their money and their power? I I would I don't I don't recall a murder in cold blood in the middle of a casino. I don't believe that actually ever happened. However, uh, that's not to say that a person who was cheating a casino or who uh, had crossed you know who came in the casino and and crossed the wrong people, weren't uh, escorted back to the back and, and, and taken a beating. Uh, that certainly did happen in those days. Um, I think the, the interesting dynamic of the set, late 70s and early 80s is that with Tony Spilatro here in particular and Lefty Rosenthal and, other, and like the Detroit mob and some other ones who were involved in casinos, at that time, the FBI was increasing its, its investigations in Las Vegas and the state gaming control board, the state gaming regulators, were taking a much greater interest in what was happening at the casinos. The sophistication of the of the law enforcement presence uh, grew significantly. In the past, there'd been this sense that, well, as long as you don't cause too much trouble, we'll let you do whatever you want. Well, in the 70s, that mindset changed. And there was a decision that maybe the mob was not a positive influence in Las Vegas, Maybe we need to push these fellows out of here. And so what was happening is a lot of times uh, it, the government of FBI famously would try to develop informants and government witnesses and you know flip people to testify against. Uh, and, and then so if there's going to be a, there's an indictment and there's going to be a trial, you know, what do you want to do if you're a mob guy who's on trial? You want to get rid of the witnesses. You want to root out the informants and and get them out of the way so that you can win your win your case. So this was a dynamic that we hadn't really seen in Las Vegas before. So once you start enforcing the law, you start you know, the the bad guys start looking for ways to, to you know to avoid going to prison. So there was a lot of violence related to that. Uh, people who disappeared, like a guy named Jay Vandermark. Jay Vandermark is a character in the movie Casino as well. Uh, but he uh, he disappeared in 1976, and he had been the manager of the slot machines at the Stardust Hotel. He was involved with the skim, and the skim was the taking the money off the top before government before the government even knew you had made that money, so then it would not be taxed, and it was cash, so it would be you know they'd hire couriers to go back take that money literally on planes or in cars back to the Midwest. Uh, this cash was t- delivered to the mob bosses around the Midwest. So uh, when, the, when the government starts taking an interest in this, they're starting to uh, you know, talk to people like Jay Vandermark and others and say, you know what, you can go to prison for a long time or you can go into witness protection or you can go into and serve a much shorter sentence if you testify. So this was a, a very dangerous time and so you did see a lot more, a lot more violence. And was his body ever found? Or is he somebody that maybe could be the body in Lake Mead? Well, we have we have speculated that that Jay Vandermark 
could conceivably be the body in the barrel. However, uh, we uh, there was court testimony in 2007 in a very high-profile mob case in Chicago in which a, a fairly trustworthy government witness said Vandermark was actually killed in Phoenix and then he was buried out in the desert outside of Phoenix. Now, if that being true, they have not found the body. Nobody has dug up Jay Vandermark. So in theory... It, it maybe that's not true. Maybe he was killed in Las Vegas and buried in Lake Mead. Um, there are other suspects, though, other individuals whose bodies are missing uh, from that same era, uh, who also you know might be the, the possible victims of the mob. Getting in slightly into the technicalities of it, if you can, um, like to get rid of a body in the desert, right? You just dig down really deep, I presume. And uh, does the, because, you know, you see these desert storms and you see the, I mean, the idea of digging into sand wouldn't seem a very secure place to put a body. So would the Lake Mead situation, the barrel, have been a more attractive way maybe for mobsters to consider, uh, you know, a body disappearing forever? So a couple things about that. So the first thing is Las Vegas, uh, but in my job, in my, you know, I talk to people every day about this stuff and, you know, uh, people who know a lot or people who don't know anything and they ask me questions. People, there was a reputation in Las Vegas that, 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 that the, what the mob did was they would bury the bodies out in the desert or dump them out in the desert because, again, you don't want to have that exposure right here in the city. Um, that didn't happen nearly as often as people want to believe. <laughs> now, uh, there are cases where bodies were buried out in the desert uh, and they've been found by hikers or, you know, different people uh, uh, where maybe they weren't buried deeply enough. Maybe they were dug up by an animal. Or in one case, Al Bramlett, who was a, a labor leader here, he was killed. He was buried in the desert, but his hands were left above the, above the desert floor so that he could be found. And there was a bit of a message there. Um, but... But all during this time, these decades where people have been talking about burying bodies in the desert, I've never heard anybody until recently talk about dumping a body in Lake Mead. Now, that's actually quite common, <laughs> commonly understood back east, right? In New York, you know, you dump a body in the East River or in a lake or in the ocean, uh, you know, not just in the eastern United States, but all over the world. The idea of dumping bodies in the, body, in the water is not unusual. Had not heard that here. One thing about the, you know, you, we, we use that phrase desert sands, but that's not really how our, 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 our uh, dirt is. It's actually quite hard packed. And so when you dig down, uh, it's probably going to, you know, if you dig deep enough, you know, that body's going to stay there for a long time. Um, mm. But uh, but you got some big animals out there. Yeah, you have sure. mountain lions and that's <laughs> true. You know, yeah. certainly bigger stuff than we would consider. And presumably, they, you know, you'd have to go down very far to stop any sort of animal activity around a body. Certainly, for a long, if you want to be the want the body to be hidden for a long period of time. You know, what I was going to say about the barrel in, in Lake Mead is, you know, if you just put your 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 uh, yourself in the mind of the mobster who. Who buried, you know, who, who dumped the body in that barrel out in Lake Mead? You had to believe that that barrel would never be found, because in the 1970s, how many climatologists were talking about climate change the way we do today? They couldn't have imagined that this lake was going to recede by 20, 30, 40, 50 feet. 
you know. Uh, so, you know, uh, can't, I don't think we can blame the the mobsters for not really for doing a bad job. You know, they did. It did remain hidden for a long time. And also look at how investigation techniques have changed and in particular with that DNA, which is such a huge thing in America now about the genealogical databases that exist and so many cold case murders are being solved with them. Um, And, you know, especially people involved around, you know, your criminal database, for example, is absolutely vast as well. So anyone involved around criminality, that's obviously a big possibility. How long does that take? And do you think that's going to be first across the post to solve this murder? I think, I I personally think DNA is probably the most likely way that we will identify this body. Uh, You know, DNA technology has has advanced so so much now. You know, a lot of innocent people in prison have been released because of DNA evidence. A lot of cold cases have been solved, as you mentioned. And the database is growing so much that, you know, making those familial connections is becoming uh, easier literally every day. The more people who, who put their, you know, uh, you know, send their, their spit or their blood into a tube so that they can be part of the database, as I've done, uh, you know, there's, you know, the lot more the greater likelihood that you're going to be able to fi- identify people. So I think that's going to happen first. I don't think it's going to be imminent. Uh, this, this DNA, there's a great deal of demand on these DNA research centers right now. And so every cold case in America is sending DNA in there, you know, and every innocent man in prison is sending DNA so that they can hopefully be cleared if they, if they indeed should be cleared. And so there's a backlog. So then you get into the, into the situation where what are the priorities? Now for us, because we're interested in this body in the barrel, we think that should be the priority. Like, let's get that result as quickly as possible. We've got a TV show coming, you know, or whatever. But the reality is that, you know, it may take a year before we know we know who that is. I hope it's less, uh, you know. Because the labs are just overwhelmed, of course, and I don't think they've caught up. Now, I do want to go back to the, uh, you know, what happened next, basically, with the mob and through the 80s and 90s. But first, just to home in on that possibility of certainly some of the individuals you've described who went missing, never found, and are possible murder victims. Do any of them after the passage of time, because, of course, the 70s was 50 years ago, most of them, but um, do, do families ever campaign in the same way you see other murder victims' families for these cases to be open, to be solved? Do they ever come forward, even though a lot of the characters that would have been, you know, there at the time were obviously very scary and nobody went up against the mob, but as the decades rolled on, do any of these murders ever get that sort of um, campaign thing you see? You know, uh, I have not seen that quite as much with mob mob cases, uh, but certainly we... There are cold cases in Las Vegas uh, I've read about over the past five to ten years where families have have recognized the the possibility of DNA being a, a new uh, technology that can help solve a crime and we've solved our local police department has solved a, a large number of cold cases that way and we actually have this thing in Las Vegas this new organization called the Las Vegas Justice League which kind of plays off of the you know the the, car, the comic book. 
but they are uh, basically philanthropists who are putting up money to solve to to do the DNA testing to solve cases like this. And it's a very interesting development. I think once private industry like this or philanthropists become involved in this, it will only accelerate the perhaps the number of uh, of uh, cold cases that are solved, uh, innocent people who are freed, and so forth. Uh, I, families, I, I sus- and this is a speculation on my part, but I think you're going to see more and more families where these cold case mysteries have just been hanging over them for decades, you know, come forward and start pushing for this kind of assistance. And um, I do think that's going to be a thing for the next 10 years. Are you including mob murders in that? Because it always seems to me as if within the realms of organized crime, murder is accepted by everybody, including the families of those who are murdered. I'm not saying that they feel somebody deserves to be, but it's part and parcel of that life and it's deeply embedded in that culture. It doesn't have that same, they they sort of almost, their loved one is buried, but their death is accepted. I think there's I think there's a there's some there's some truth to that when you're talking about one mob person killing another mob person. But that's not always what the situation is, right? Uh, first of all, there's innocent bystanders many times. And also there are people who just like didn't pay their debts. You know, they're just a, a guy with a gambling problem, you know. And uh now some of those things can be embarrassing, you know. Any for a family you know, you uh, if you have a young a young woman who has been missing for twenty years, and she was just she was Miss Nevada, and she was just this wonderful person. Everybody loved her, and she suddenly disappeared. You know, there's a there's a great hurt and a great a great deal of of concern about you know what exactly happened to that person, right? If they're a, more of a ne'er do well, if they're more of a, somebody who's associated with crime and uh, and you know uh, the mob, then you're right. It's like, well, let's let the dead be buried and let's leave it alone. Um, I, I do think there's a little bit of a difference there, but you know that's another misnomer about the mob is you know that the it was Bugsy Siegel who famously said we only kill each other, but in in fact you know the mob has killed many many people who were not in the mob, and um, including innocent people. You know, and I think those cases are ones where you know, I would think a family would still be greatly interested in in solving the crime. For sure. And in that, nothing has changed over the decades, you know, up to today. If an innocent person is caught up in any sort of gangland crime or there is public outrage, but it just seems easier forgotten when it's somebody who has maybe, um, you know, what do they say? They live by the sword and die by the sword. Um, Going back to where we left off there and moving into the 80s and 90s, what happens in Vegas with the mobs? So what's happening in the early 80s is that the, especially the early 80s, is you have some very high-profile prosecutions of uh, the mob, peop, the mob involvement with the casinos, and what you see is the FBI and the state regulators in Nevada really working hard to push the mob out of Las Vegas completely. Um, a couple of turning points there. One of the big ones uh, was the death of Tony Spilatro. Spilatro was was murdered by his own mob, you know, his own mob family in Chicago, uh, really marking, that really marked the end of the Chicago mob's active involvement in the casino industry in Las Vegas. Now, I don't want to say they were completely out of Las Vegas yet, but they were definitely out of the casino business. 
the second, and, and then same thing with the Detroit mob, they were uh, pushed out as well by regulators uh, and the FBI. Um, but the other thing that was happening is in the late 80s, you started to see, uh, and even, it started before that, but in the late 80s, you really started to see entrepreneurs who saw a huge future for Las Vegas, and they were willing to invest much more money in the city than the mob had. You know, the mob only had so much money. Uh, these, you know, Wall Street, the corporate uh, investors could come in and spend not only tens of millions, as the mob did, but hundreds of millions or even billions to build giant resorts. And so really, it was uh, really the corporatization of Las Vegas that pushed the mob out for good. Uh, the, the really started in 1989 with the opening of the Mirage Hotel. The Mirage was built by a man named Steve Wynn, and Steve Wynn became quite famous here for the resorts that he built. Um, and, and, and so Wynn opens the Mirage in 1989. That's quickly followed on its heels by the opening of the Excalibur uh, Hotel and then the MGM Grand by Kirk Kikorian, another entrepreneur. These are all non-mob people. And uh, pretty soon the mob is, is just priced out of the market. That's the bottom line. Now, it's not to say there weren't mobsters involved in kind of petty crime here. Uh, we know the, the Buffalo mob and the Los Angeles mob were still trying to gain a foothold in Las Vegas in the 90s. Uh, we know that even up into the modern day, the mob had some involvement with some of the nightclubs. They've had some involvement with other kinds of industry here. Uh, but, you know, not the casinos anymore. It's, it's, the casinos are just too sophisticated now. The accounting is all, you know, digitized and, and you know, it's all accounted for in a way that the mob, it would be, be very difficult for the mob to skim money today, uh, not only because of the internal controls on the money, but also the IRS and other federal agencies that are just so clamped down on how things are done. Mm, it probably coincides with changing times as well in the, you know, in, in the criminal geography and how a lot of the mobs did move towards drug dealing. Um, you know, you had the Italian mafias moving into sometimes the clothing industry to launder funds. And, uh, you know, it seems now kind of quaint that a criminal organization would find a desert outpost and, you know, launder all their money there. It just, you know, in the same way as DNA has um, advanced, so too has criminal money laundering, really. And uh, it's left behind Vegas, maybe, in a way. But um, the Mob Museum, the last time I was in Vegas, I was desperate to go and I never got there. Oh. Um, probably just got a little bit caught up in what I was doing in one of those Wynn hotels you talk about. Um, but do you get people who are there for, you know, stag weekends and everything, wander in to have a look at the, I mean, the history of it is fascinating. And you have all sorts of displays, I think, including some pretty grisly stuff. We do. Uh, you know, we're, we're uh, uh, you know, a nationally accredited museum. We take our, our work very seriously. Uh, it's not cheesy. It's not you know. It's, it's not kitschy, uh, but it is. It's not, it's fun nonetheless, right? It's educational, but it's very fun. And uh, we found that uh, people who come to Las Vegas, uh, they certainly are going to have a good time on the Strip or downtown, and they're going to they're going to do the the Vegas thing. 
But oftentimes they're looking for an opportunity too to, to learn something while they're here, to do something constructive. And uh, we've, uh, we've benefited greatly from that. Uh, we, you know, we average a, a, you know, more than 400,000 people a year come through our doors. Uh, we do a number of public programs every year where we have speakers come in, experts on organized crime, uh, former mobsters, former law enforcement authors. Um, we uh, you know, have a lot of private events. We have a lot of weddings at the museum. People love to get married in our courtroom. Uh, you know, we have a federal court. Our building is a former federal courthouse and post office. And people love to be married in our, in our building. Uh, you know, it's oftentimes a dress-up kind of thing. You know, you want to look like classic gangsters or whatever. And um, That yeah. sounds like a scene out of my favorite movie, The Hangover. <laughs> yes, The Hangover, uh, definitely. Uh, we wish, it's too bad we weren't uh, part of that. But, uh, you know, the, the, we've had so many other things filmed at our place that, uh, you know, there's the word of mouth about Las Vegas, about the Mob Museum in particular is just tremendous. We have many, now, you know, with the easing of restrictions on travel, you know, that international uh, visitorship is going to be going, we're already seeing it. That's going to be going back up again uh, for, you know, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, Europeans love Las Vegas and we found that they love the Mob Museum as well. And so we're, we're seeing those folks starting to come back, which is great. Yeah, well, I think... Jeff, that Crime World should go on tour and uh, myself, Clodagh and Ian could be heading your direction for maybe a sort of a private tour of the Mob Museum and that's if the guys can get me out of the casinos because it's one of my favourite places, I have to say, <laughs> to have a bit of fun. But let's keep an eye on the body in Lake Mead and see what comes of that because that sounds to me like uh, there could be some some very interesting stories untangling there. Um, and, you know, I'm sure privately you have your money on certain victims, but <laughs> I won't ask you to name them straight out. Um, but look, we might come back to you over the next course of the next couple of months as as that story emerges. And obviously uh, you keep an eye if any other bodies show up in barrels on the on the shores of Lake Mead. So, Jeff Schumacher, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And if you do come out, I'll, I'll definitely give you that private tour. <laughs> You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.